0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Hurwitz. And welcome back, fellow criminal Americans to the Conservative Review podcast. This is Daniel Hurwitz back in the house on Wednesday, May the 6th. And yes, you and I are all criminals. You see, if you are an American citizen that simply wants to earn a living, Wants to abide by your life, liberty, and property. You don't want to ask for anything. You don't want welfare. You want criminals locked up. You want our borders secure. And you want government to stay the hell out of our lives. You, my friends, are the criminal. Again, every day I have to wake up and pinch myself to realize that we are actually living through a time like this. But, frankly, it's not so much that we're living through a time like this that shocks me. It's... The lack of pushback that shocks me. Now, it is growing from we the people, but from Republicans. I mean, you all saw uh, Shelly Luther. Now, we're not going to get into this so much today because I want to get more into the science uh, and the virology. We're going to have a doctor on the show in a couple minutes. But obviously, you all saw Shelly Luther, today's Rosa Parks. She's being sent to jail for seven days for merely opening up her salon a week before Greg Abbott ultimately said they could all open. How many people do you have in there? Five, ten? When you have 700 people in a Home Depot or a Walmart, the subways? All because of a lie. All because of a lie. You now have Oregon saying that counties can't open up until their level of and infection hospitalizations, is below the flu. They keep moving the goalposts. So folks, they have sunk their teeth into this tyranny. They will not get rid of it. Remember, the left has accomplished economically, in a personal liberty sense, in terms of abolishing prison and and ICE facilities. They're literally, ICE facilities are teeming with releases of, of the most violent Criminals of other countries, while American citizens like Shelley Luther are locked up. And where's the outrage? You saw that video of the SWAT team arresting someone else in Texas. We have like 10 different stories I have from Texas. Greg Abbott is governor. Republicans have majorities in both houses. So what is this? When a Democrat controls a county government... They could leverage everything, but when Republicans have the President, the Senate, more than half the states and state legislatures, and then even in the states where they control all the states, the Democrats have everything, yet Republicans control county government in a Democrat state, they're not even on the map. If Republicans control the courts and the Democrats are the executive, the executive suddenly can do whatever they want. But if the Republicans have the executive and the Democrats have the courts... The executive is nothing. Some people are telling me, well, Daniel, the Republicans didn't really do this. It was mainly the Democrats. First of all, last time I checked, there's an awful lot of Democrats in the White House, beginning with Fauci, who's ostensibly the president. But if that's true, then Republicans are merely the rear end, the rear end of the Democrats. And they just follow wherever they go. If the Republican Party cannot stand up at a time like now and do what they did with Kavanaugh, where you had everyone unified on the same page, emphatically pushing back, and you see how successful it was. If you can't do that now, then go home. Oh, Daniel, we have to win the next election, the next election. At some point, you got to live in the here and now. At some point, the next election doesn't matter because we are living through a worse outcome than we could have ever dreamt of. Had Democrats won all offices. Because essentially, they win no matter what, except when Republicans are in power, it's even worse because they go along with it, halfway defend what the left is doing, halfway feign helplessness, and then Republicans get blamed for it. And then, ironically, Democrats win even more. You have the worst of all worlds. And all of this is built on something so flimsy. It's a lie. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But it, the, the legalities and the constitutionality and the liberty tie into the science because if they could do this to us on such a whim when we now know it is such a bullcrap, this is not going to end. If this is the threshold, as the Oregon government is now saying, below the flu levels. We, we, we have this all the time. Most people never even knew when we had... The record flu season in 2018, 60,000 died from it. If that's going to be the pretext, you will, you will never put this genie back in the bottle if we don't have more people standing up like Shelley Luther. But anyway, many of you who follow me on Twitter, and I'm going to have an article out today chronicling this. You will notice that there is an, an insane observation I have That we started out with yesterday on this show. That now we have reams of evidence that this is true. And it is the most immediate point to get out to the public. See, we noticed there's something funny. If you look at the hospitalizations and just the anecdotal evidence on the ground, it looks like the epidemic is over. Pretty much over. I mean, everyone agrees that even the lockdown people are saying, oh, well, if you open up, it will get worse. But, I mean, everyone realizes we're well well past the peak, like every other country had. It goes up very quickly, but then it peaks and then goes down very quickly. Whereas if you look at the death numbers, they're all, every day we're adding thousands and thousands, and, and it looks like we're, you know, we're blue past 70,000. It looks like we'll usually hit 100,000. Like, but, but it doesn't reflect that. Well, now we know what happened. Aside from all the padding of the data, and we'll get into some of that, it now appears That almost all of the deaths taking place are in nursing homes. And even then, depending on the state, it could be a lot of them are being recorded now, but they're backfilled. The deaths actually occurred several weeks ago. So the implication of that would mean that we are continuing a shutdown when there are essentially almost no deaths. Forget about outside of old and chronically ill. There are no deaths outside of nursing homes. On May 1st in the state of Pennsylvania alone, 55 of the 62 deaths recorded that day were nursing homes. We now have in totality, if you look at a state in totality, the number of deaths from the beginning of March till now. You'll be hard pressed to find a state where the total composition of the deaths that nursing homes comprise or compose is less than 50%. And in fact a lot of them are 70-80% Minnesota's up to 85% of the deaths are in nursing homes. But the critical point here is if you look at the last 2 weeks and really accelerating the last few days and and henceforth in many states 80 to 90% of them are in nursing homes if not nearly 100% are in nursing homes. So before we talk about what that means For nursing homes and how it is in fact those that are pushing the lockdown and the strategies and policies behind it are the ones killing grandpa not us so in other words not only are they killing the economy killing heart patients killing cancer patients killing everyone with the shutdown the mental health God knows how many millions of people will die for years to come from this but they are actually killing more COVID patients in nursing homes by indiscriminately Focusing all of their resources on enforcing and funding lockdowns for everyone when they need to train their fire on where the fire is. It's like you have a fire in a building in a city and you indiscriminately spray hoses on the whole city hoping that enough of it will seep into that building. But what we know for sure is that at this point it is indefensible to do anything but focus 100% of your resources and the testing and the PPE on the nursing homes. I mean, like I said, for the amount of money we spent shutting everyone down and paying for it, trillions upon trillions of dollars, we could have, for a fraction of that, bought every nursing home patient a private villa with an aide who had the ability to test every 24 hours. I have data from numerous states. Massachusetts, on April 16th, 47.8% of the deaths were in nursing homes. Now it's 59. Pennsylvania, on April 16th, it was 51.6. Now it composes 67.3. New Jersey, on April 17th, it was 39.8. Now it's 50. Minnesota, on April 28th, it was 77%. As of May 5th, it's 85%. Connecticut, as of April 16th, it was 40%, now it's 55%. Virginia, according to Kaiser, as of April 23rd, was 22%, now it's 57%. If you do the math, folks, it works out that almost every death, all the 300, 400 that were added in the last two weeks were all from nursing homes. Because a lot of people were wondering, like Virginia, everyone's saying they're not peaking, the deaths keep going up. No, it's all from nursing homes. Now, there's, there's questions over why that's happening now, even worse than the peak, and there's a lot of very shady things, meaning either they're padding the numbers, they're backfilling them, or there's something very insidious going on in there. Meaning either they're coding just traditional, it's just a free-for-all, because we know that, again, the virus is spread far and wide, and, and especially in a nursing home, a prison, a ship, once you get it, everyone gets it, but it's not quite, a, but but... But therefore, it's much, much less deadly, but they're assuming everyone dies from it. So, you know, nursing homes, people die every day. They're now coding them all as those deaths, as as COVID deaths. Or is there something more insidious going on there? And I don't even want to mention it. But one thing we do know already is that in uh California, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, at least and Pennsylvania, at least those states, the governors ordered nursing homes to take back people that tested positive for COVID in hospitals and brought them in. And we know that that killed a lot of people. This is unbelievable. Illinois accounted for 22% of fatalities on April 19th. Now it's up to 44%. If you do the math, that would mean that 68% of all the new deaths for those 11 days were in nursing homes. And the trend is accelerating every single day. The implication of this is enormous. Our government has an obligation, state by state, to put out data every day henceforth. How many, what percentage in each state are dying in nursing homes? How many are dying in nursing homes and outside of nursing homes that day or just being recorded on that day but were from before? And they need an age stratification and health status stratification. Because that will tell you the entire picture of what we are seeing now that essentially nobody under a certain age and without health conditions is dying. A certain relatively small amount that are older with health conditions are dying. And almost the rest of it is all in nursing homes themselves or long-term care facilities, assisted living. This is the real scandal. This is what we should have focused on from day one. But I want to get back to that later. So one of the few ancillary benefits of Twitter and social media amidst all the problems on it is that in my line of work, I've gotten to meet a lot of really good patriots, really smart people that have become friends of this show just, you know, through chance meeting and through watching and observing people put out very good information. And they're not necessarily people that you'll see as the talking heads Um, in the political elites, but they actually have more thoughtful things to say. Um, and, and one of the people I've seen is Dr. James Todaro and you guys could all follow him at James Todaro MD on Twitter. And that is spelled T O D A R O. Uh, he's a physician with a medical degree from Columbia university in New York. Um, and he did his residency specializing in ophthalmology, eye surgery, uh, he's presently managing partner of an investment fund, so he's got a lot of financial experience as well. And he's closely following this epidemic to the point that he actually co-authored a paper called the, An Effective Treatment for Coronavirus, really making the evidence-based case for hydroxychloroquine i know a lot of you asked me to talk about that and i i said look you know that's more the medical side of things not the public policy side so i wanted to get an md on the show to discuss that and the treatment so hopefully we'll get into that as well um but we'll certainly get into many many of your questions that you guys have sent to me with no further ado dr zadaro thanks so much for joining us today
1: Thanks, Daniel, for the kind intro and having me
0: on the show. Sure. So obviously you've been in high demand because there are very few people putting out the truth, even though the data and the jury are – the jury's in. The data's in. We see what's happening. So just to kind of unpack this here, the the way I see just the timeline is that you go, you go to January and February. This thing hung around for a long time when we as a public totally knew about it. Totally were observing it. Fauci on down treated it like, look, you know, a lot of people get it. It's not a big deal. I mean, you know, we'll watch it. You got to do something. I took it extremely seriously from day one. I worked with Senators Holly and Cotton to get a shutoff from China um, already in mid-January. And unfortunately, it dragged on for a while. And even then, it wasn't complete. And we kind of watched it. You hear about a few cases here and there, but we didn't have testing ability. It was a little bit weird, you know, some anecdotal evidence of some mysterious stuff. A lot of people, including my own kids, talk about um, these weird flus that people had where they tested negative for the flu, negative for strep. And then suddenly, coincidentally, right around the time, around March when we started testing, is when this thing really surged, or it appeared to have surged. And suddenly, watching Italy, and then it's starting in New York City... All of the elites and the global elites, the the domestic elites, threw out everything we know about virology, about epidemiology, everything we know about respiratory viruses and coronaviruses in particular that had been around for a while. And it seems like what we did is we married two conflicting um, principles that I want you to talk about and explain, you know, to, to us laymen that in the one hand, they treated it almost as if it had a fatality rate of Ebola, like, you know, an insane fatality rate. It's like 60% in Congo. Um, maybe it would be a little lower here, but it's very high. But on the other hand, it's extremely contagious, and everyone's going to get it like a respiratory virus. So everyone's going to get it. Everyone's going to die. And they acted accordingly. And they acted accordingly and and did something that is just unconscionable. But yet, doesn't don't we see now, based on serology, based on prisons, which is full data sets, based on meatpacking plants, which are pretty contained, based on ships, that for almost everyone outside of certain defined groups, this is in fact both very contagious and has spread far and wide and has long spread far and wide, and at the same time It actually is not that deadly. Could you explain that a little bit and explain the inverse relationship between contagion and fatality rate?
1: Sure. So I guess if we take a step back to when I started following this in January, really the two most important questions to me was, were, is there a treatment for this this virus? And that's when we came up with the, and then we came up with the paper on hydroxychloroquine as a viable treatment option for this. And we can talk about that a little bit later. The second question was, what is the, the true infection fatality rate? How out of how many people out of how many people get infected, how many people die? And that was really, I think, one of the the missing pieces to this puzzle um, up until about mid-April. And this is why I think. I took a lot of caution. and It sounds like you were taking caution early on as well because we were seeing reports that this had a fatality rate of of something on five to 10%, or maybe even higher. Coming out of China, it looked like it was extremely lethal. And we didn't really know how widespread it is. I tweeted out in early March, I think it was March 2nd, saying that my suspicion was that this is far more contagious and less lethal than it was looking like at the time. And the reason for that is just based on the, the R naught, the amount of people that get infected from one infected individual and the way this virus was quickly spreading and seeding other countries. And this is when there's extremely limit testing, almost no testing going on. It really gave me the impression that this virus was going to be widespread very rapidly and, um, and would likely result in a lower fatality rate for a couple of reasons. First of all, these types of viruses, single-stranded RNA viruses, are highly subject to mutations. When people think mutations, they often think, oh, that's bad. Not necessarily, it can actually be a good thing because it's in the virus's best interest to uh, actually mutate into a less lethal form. That way it can spread more readily among people because they're still going to work, they're still participating in activities and such. And and that's what I think we're starting to see now um, in early May is that this is widespread autopsy studies show that this virus had community spread as early as january mid-january and probably honestly even earlier than that and there's serology studies that are coming out in mid-april that were initially attacked by academics and mainstream media particularly the one out of stanford and then the one out of university of southern california that showed the prevalence of people that have already been infected with coronavirus to be far higher. I think at the time, based on confirmed testing in California, it was showing there's only 0.1% of the population there was infected, whereas based on these antibody studies, where they could see who already has built up antibodies and was likely infected previously, it showed that the, about maybe four or five, 6% of the population had already been infected in California. And then you can extrapolate that to the amount of fatality to determine an infection fatality rate in California because you look at the number of deaths, which is somewhat reliable compared to the projected prevalence of this disease. And that's what uh, Joey Krug um, and I calculated was the infection fatality rate based off that. And then we broke that down into different age groups to show that in fairly healthy individuals under the age of 50, this is really not that much different from the flu, in terms of an infection fatality rate, for older people that's different. Uh, for sick elderly people, particularly those in nursing homes, this can be very deadly. Um, but for younger persons, it is somewhat similar to the flu.
0: So, so the, the top line. Let's talk about the top line. Um, You know When the World Health Organization came out with their estimate 3.4% fatality, well, that's very serious, especially if so many people get it. But you're saying actually the evolution of viruses usually dictates that you don't have Ebola-level fatality rates with something very prevalent. Like, for example, SARS, if I remember correctly, it was something like a 10% fatality rate, but not that many people wound up getting it, and therefore not that many people died. But it seems like God kind of has mercy on us that – you rarely have something that is extremely contagious where a massive percentage of the population gets it, but then the fatality rate is at high. So now we see that you know most serology studies seem to zoom in on point two, or give or take. Um, I, I want to put New York City aside and talk about that in a couple of minutes. But point two, um, we're seeing that both in American counties and states, very, very different areas, as well as from numerous European countries studies but then we're seeing as i wrote and i think you agree with you you referenced that even that number is extremely lopsided and that really gives us a lot of information strategically going forward how we should deal with this because you know among those that are elderly and sick or possibly one without the other to varying degrees um this could be up to a few percent it could be a few percent um and to, to varying degrees or, you know, if you're just a standard senior, maybe 70 years old, maybe maybe close to 1%, um, although it's not so clear. But if you're younger and healthier, it's well under point two. because yesterday I found not a single human being until yesterday died in a Tennessee prison. Not one. Now, the first one died, and I'm going to get to that, but they tested an entire universe. So you don't need extrapolation. You don't need all these, you know, oh, the serology tests are horrible. I don't like to sample. Well, I could give you better than that. I could give you an entire universe, right, an entire lockdown prison, confined population, 53% in Hartsville, Tennessee, 53% got it. Almost everyone was asymptomatic. And this is a trend we're seeing in every prison that's even beyond 60% asymptomatic. Most of them seem to be 90% asymptomatic. And as of my publication yesterday, and I had to update it because of the title, it was zero out of 1,300. Then they announced a few minutes later, one died, and guess what? He was 67, one of the rare older people in a prison. And my point was, a prison is a good extrapolation of what a younger population in general, it's not exclusively younger, but you know, only 2% senior as opposed to uh, 16% over 65, the general population. And we found... It's below point one and we saw the same thing with the with the ships the meat packing plants Could you elaborate on that lopsided um, numerator and fraction and what that means for public policy?
1: Sure so as you're saying these these meat plants and prisons uh, particularly as well are great ways to look at a somewhat confined in the term of the prison a much more confined Um, sample of patients because it's very easy and people kind of pull anecdotes of young people all around the country who are getting sick and dying from this but it's usually there's some degrees of separation between knowing that that young person that died and if you look at Twitter there seems to be an over-exaggeration of any amount of people that know these these few young people who have passed away from this virus Um, and then they're also highly publicized so uh, from what the news is showing it looks like this is You know, killing young people left and right. And that's just not what we're seeing when we look at these um, these kind of more confined uh, ecosystems or environments, such as the prison or meatpacking plants. And so one comment I'd like to add about the the prison system is actually a couple of comments. So, first of all, I have seen prisons in my outpatient clinic uh, in Detroit. I I did my residency in Detroit, Michigan, and we saw a lot of prisoners from uh, the system there who would come through for for eye problems. They really only, you know, it's very unfortunate, but they, they often get seen in very late stage disease. It's often very hard to get them to reliably take their medication. Follow-up can be very challenging as well. So this is a population that has somewhat substandard healthcare compared to, I would say, the the free population in the U.S. So you could even say that the, the healthcare that they're, they're getting, the the quickness, the you know, expediency that they're getting diagnosed is behind that in, in the pre-population. And so you could say that, you know, in some of those prison systems where they do, there's a very few, particularly the ones in Ohio that people frequently mention, where uh, in those systems, the mortality rate, I think infection fatality rate went up to about 0.7%. But even then, I think that's higher than what you're gonna see in the pre-population. Second comment, is, I think it is a better example because I think as you put it in on your paper, most people in prisons are under the age of 50, 60 years old. And so it really kind of somewhat characterizes what it would look like if the workforce uh, of America, so people between 20 and 60 who would go back to work, what their infection fatality rate looks like. Um, and, um, and, and and yeah, and what we're seeing in those studies is. Out of these large populations of people, very few deaths. And one other thing I want to point out is these uh, systems are being tested with uh, PCR tests. So they're looking for active infection with novel coronavirus. It does not take into account if they were infected, let's say, a month ago, which we know the virus is spreading around then.
0: Wow. So They're, they're not antibody tests, you're it's saying?
1: Not an, most of them are not antibody tests. So they're looking at a snapshot of time with those people infected. So I think, the, for instance, the prison system where you mentioned uh, 50 or so percent um, are shown to be infected. There could have already been uh, uh, and there likely is a percent of them that that does not account for it, that have already been infected as well. So you could even drop those fatality rates even lower and then uh, the asymptomatic rate even even higher. than the 90 plus percent that we're seeing.
0: Because when this started, everyone was like, yeah, it's a confirmation bias because you're only testing those that have severe symptoms. But no, now we're seeing, I mean, this is reams of data. I mean, you've seen it. Almost every prison says the same story, that almost, that the majority of them downright have it and have it now, as you noted, not just verified that they have had it at some point, but now have tested for it, or over the course of less, really, three weeks. But this started a long time ago. Um, And then on top of that, I mean, in four prison systems, 98% were asymptomatic. I saw one prison, a a female prison, uh, where every single person, every single person was asymptomatic. I was 100%. Um, So that tells you there is no confirmation bias. And in fact, it could be even less um, if you actually would get the full denominator. And then again, uh, uh, Dr. Todaro, then you have to go back to the numerator because – even the numerator is lopsided then. You know, we're all worried about, okay, let's get the full denominator. But the numerator likely, and we know this to be true, even the few deaths you have. Remember, there's 1.2 million people nationwide in state prisons, not including federal, state prisons. And we're we're seeing 60, 70% positive rates um, and 187 deaths. I mean, that is going to be well below 0.1%. And the thing is I I bet you if you would peel into what most of those 187 they're going to be um disproportionately from that anomalous, you know, 2-3% of the prison population that is older or 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 if they're younger they had, you know, certain serious illnesses.
1: That's exactly right.
0: So I mean that's I think I think this is this is quite obvious. Okay. Um another thing I want to talk about is potent, the potential of Uh, A super load, a super load transmission of somehow being, you know, pinged by multiple, you know, carriers of the virus and getting a really bad case. And is there such a theory and is it legitimate? Um, So if you look at what's going on, I think a lot of us have really figured out everything we need to in terms of public policy. It's quite clear this whole thing was a farce and might have been legitimate to, you know, for a week to see, make sure, double check what we pretty much knew, and you you called it. You called it March 2nd. March 2nd. I got the tweet right here for our listeners. I think, quote, I think the next two months will give a better idea of mortality rates as the U.S. finally starts to test people. I suspect the contagiousness is underestimated and the mortality rate is overestimated. But now we know that. We know that. But there's still things we are learning, things that are funny. Why did this place get this, this place not? All the different countries comparing it, all the different states— so the two big mysteries that stand out in my mind are this, and I want to see if you could shed light on them. So number one is the timing. So again, I, I called it from day one because you know my expertise is actually immigration policy. So I follow uh, travel patterns very quickly, and I was like, wait a minute. If you're telling me this is contagious as heck, and this thing at a minimum was in Wuhan in November 17th, and we have we had... 75,000, uh, 750,000 travelers from China, um, in December, and January, particularly mid January, all the hundreds of thousands of Chinese students coming back for the new semester. And then even after the shutoff on February 1st, it seems like we had another 50,000, which is a whole nother controversy. God knows how many from Europe. I mean, I didn't even factor that in. Um, so to me, it was inconceivable that we weren't bringing this in earnestly, very much so throughout January, if in fact, possibly December. And now we're seeing, you know, from Europe, the questions of, um, you know, in France, they now discovered a, a death from December 27th. We see the Swedish uh, health department, it believes it was in Sweden even in November. And we have a heck of a lot more travel from China than those countries do, especially Sweden. So to me, it was inconceivable this wasn't brought in before. And, and one of the arguments I've been making is that, even if you want to tell me lockdown um, would work even in a a myopic sense, meaning forgetting about the net loss of everything else and the lives and the cancer patients and heart patients and the fact that you're going to wind up getting this back because you're not going to achieve herd immunity. But even in the short term, my point was that could only work if you're one of those countries that really jumped out ahead of it and did it early. But when you let this in so contagiously for months and certainly in earnest for weeks – you know it's like it's like spitting in a sea what are you what are you doing there but the the two questions that i have remaining are number 1 how come we didn't see this massive surge in january and february um i know some of it's been exaggerated some of the overrunning has been exaggerated but clearly anecdotally and you know we didn't see this even though you know it was probably ensconced in some of the flu and pneumonia numbers but it clearly wasn't as bad as it was in march and number 2 what is your explanation of New York City? I mean, now that we have serology, again, it's not going to be the 8%, 10% death that if you would take the known cases divided by the deaths, it's an insane high number. It's going to be well below 1%, but it still appears to be maybe three times higher than elsewhere, not just in terms of the spread, which is insanely higher than LA, Chicago, Houston, even proportionate to the population, but the fatality rate. Okay, I, I threw a lot at you. Let's see. Let's see what you can do with it. Unlimited time. All right. All right.
1: Okay. All right. A few different pieces there. So, regarding the um, why we weren't seeing a surge in cases in January, February. Remember, even though this had exponential spread, it still took a a period of time before it started reaching a point where it was uh, kind of exhausting the resources at hospital systems, and that's when it started to, I think, become readily apparent that. That there were a was widespread um, disease present. Um, the second part, though, is I think that it, there's a good chance that it it mutated to a more contagious strain throughout that time. It was kind of incubating, from person to person, with kind of trying out its different mutations to find one that that really um, kind of was you know easily transmissible, and then that that took off. Now that has not been confirmed. There's a study that came out yesterday that showed, right, LA Times did a piece on it. Um, The LA Times piece, by the way, has been criticized uh, enormously for for different reasons of it, but not regarding the part on the fact that they, that this did likely mutate into a more contagious strain, which that's the kind of the part of the, this article that I found interesting. Um, So that could be another reason why it spread, it began to spread much more rapidly um, in March and April. Um, regarding New York City, so you kind of mentioned at the beginning of, of your talk about viral load, does that matter, or is that just a theory? And I think it does have merit. So and, and a few experts in virology and infectious disease have said this as well. And I actually tweeted a nice little chart on it, I think, back in early March, showing that just based on exponential growth a, alone of viral replication, that the difference of of how much load, so how much kind of infectious dose you get at the very beginning of your illness matters because that's where you kind of start your point of exponential growth and can you know, have, a, have a large difference over just a few days. And so the goal is to not get a large enough infectious dose to immediately overwhelm your immune system. Your immune system needs time, it needs days to build up the right antibodies to fight this virus. So if you get a very large dose at the beginning, large infectious dose of this virus, it can it goes into just a few uh, rounds of exponential growth, and now your body is overwhelmed, and that might be the cases that we're seeing that you know why certain people, why even some young people, uh, it, this this has been so fatal in them, young healthy
0: people. In New York City, in particular. Yeah. In other words, outside of New York City, it's almost not even on the map. In New York City, it's still an infinitesimal percentage of the deaths there, but it's on the map that you could find some younger people. Um, although again, I think they do put out it's still about ninety nine percent had underlying conditions, but but you do find you know some younger people. Everything seems to be broader there, a broader epidemic, more people roped in, more demographics, and it seems as a percentage, you know, if everyone where else will be point two, then they'll be on average point six or whatever.
1: Exactly, and then when it comes to uh, this in Think about New York, which from the very beginning, I had a brother that was out in New York um, during this time, and and this was before there's really almost any cases in New York. Really, I think the first cases were popping up in Washington at the time. But I said, you know, look, New York is going to be where this thing hits hard. This is the first place. So John, John, my brother, when you when you see this coming, you know, we'll have to you know make a decision about it and stuff and see because that's kind of where it's going to start happening first. And the reason I thought that is because. You, you have people packed in very close together. You have people packed in in subway cuts, people coughing and sneezing on them. And so you have that possibility of having that, that larger initial infectious dose from this virus. And maybe that is the reason why, uh, you know, there are those, because it really doesn't take a whole lot of, of young fatalities to change this number because there's, there's not all that many of them. So if you have just 50 or so, Young people that get this overwhelming infectious dose, that changes the numbers dramatically for that age group. Um, still very low, but changes the numbers dramatically compared to, say, uh, California or Texas or other areas where people are not crammed together in subways and maybe getting as high of an infectious dose. And this is kind of played out with healthcare workers, too. It does seem like healthcare workers have a little bit higher, essentially, uh, you know, degree of symptom symptoms and fatalities. And for
0: workers. Right, exactly. S- subway workers. Right. Subway workers. My understanding is that subway workers have died in New York City twice the level of NYPD and fire, which are both very exposed, put together. So that would explain, and I think that's a terrific explanation, and, I, and I'm and i assuming that's your explanation or, or at least hypothesis for places like Lombardi as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly right. Whenever you have people that close together, there is that chance that a few of those people are going to get that that infectious dose that overwhelms their system and and you know they, they suffer an unfortunate outcome.
0: So my my problem with that so that that does really satisfy the puzzle a little bit. Um, the problem I have with that is I, I thought for sure that was true. Well, you know, a week ago I would have said that's for sure it, and 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 which is by the way you know. A lot of people are saying, well, Daniel, if you're just saying, like, let all the, you know, non-vulnerable demographics go out and it's all about herd immunity. So then, you know, why be careful at all? Why are you saying a balanced approach and to still avoid mass gatherings and to take precautions? Well, just uh, achieve it as quickly as possible. So, I mean, number one is, you know, the flattening the curve thing is not. It's not like we disagree with it hundred percent. We disagree that they took it to the level of the gates of hell, but you know, with no you know measure or balance, it, you you don't want to get anything really too quickly. But also, I was concerned that you know we know the science about the demographics and the stratification, so that we can act on. But it doesn't hurt to, in other words, if you look at what it's going to take out of our lives and economy. Um, And, you know, certainly healthcare is, you don't want to shut down elective surgeries. You don't want to shut down businesses with five people in them. You don't want to, you know, that's really where we're going to, you know, have our lives, the medical supply, the food supply going, um, you know, basketball stadiums and things like that. I mean, it will take a chunk out of the economy, no matter what. But, you know, that we have to learn a little bit more. And, and that was kind of my explanation. The second half of it was the viral load. But the problem that I'm having is what I said with the prisons. What really bothers me is that, and again, I, I don't know. This is not a loaded question. I'm just kind of, kind of. Talking out loud and trying to come to the You'd truth. Here, the prison system that, to get
1: that higher viral load and have more fatalities.
0: Exactly. Because essentially, that's what the ACLU was saying in their lawsuits that you don't understand. These are, I mean, you get that in there and everyone's going to get it and everyone's going to die. Now, they were right on the first half. Everyone gets it. Except what that actually wound up demonstrating was well, everyone got it and they didn't die. And what happened was um, let's take ICE facilities. They're a little freer than, than jails and they actually have very good healthcare, much better than regular prisons. That's a whole nother discussion, you know, contrary to popular belief, but but here's the deal. Do you know that so far among those who are, have been tested, 60%, 60% tested positive, there is not a single fatality in ICE custody. There's about 30,000 nationwide. It's down from 55,000, 30,000, and I spoke with... Um, one of my buddies at ICE, there were two um, security guards who died. They weren't ICE officials. They were one of these private um, companies. And he didn't know the ages, but he told me they both had major hypertension and diabetes, both of them. So it's amazing how it follows the same pattern. So uh, do you have any theory on that?
1: So it's a a great point. And, You know, unfortunately, I can't, I can't refute it. You know, there's a lot of factors at play here. And it's just, it's, I guess it's very difficult to say. The other thing that's a little bit challenging to say is, you know, how they're kind of counting deaths. So, you know, this kind of varies from one state to another. And, you know, hospital, so, So, first of all, hospital systems are, uh, you know, have a, have a little bit of a financial incentive to declare COVID death. They, they make at least 20% more in Medicare reimbursement, at least, um, for a COVID diagnosis as opposed to a non-COVID diagnosis. I've also seen um, uh, officials speaking about how those uh, officials and hospital administrators uh, explain how patients are determined to, to be a, a COVID death. And it, um, you know, it's if you have COVID, if you are suspected COVID, you, you often are declared a, a COVID death, regardless of your, your state uh, of health in other ways. Um, I'm not discrediting the, the entire number of, of deaths, but there is some discrepancy that will likely happen from one state to another, which is what we're also saying with the way countries were kind of uh, deciding what, what was a COVID death and what was not and why there's some discrepancies there as well. So there's a whole range of factors at play here that makes it hard to, I guess, compare even one state to maybe another.
0: And one country to another.
1: I exactly, mean, exactly. You
0: know, this has been a big puzzle. And anyone who's trying to f- discover the truth about this virus is going to want to look at all the different outcomes. Um, and the, the the funny thing is, everyone is focused on the public policy oh, well, this country did this or this country did that. Obviously, I would have an incentive to say, no, the countries that did lock down um, the most, which is most of Europe and the Western countries, had a horrible outcome. And the Asian countries, you know, a lot of some of them even kept schools open like Taiwan, and they had great outcomes. But what it really almost appears is that it's it's neither one. It, it didn't make much of a difference either way. It's that, A, there's, there's health issues. I mean, you know, the Asians are very thin. They're very healthy. Japanese are very healthy. Um, genetically it could be, I mean, because you're now seeing even in Western countries, you look at the New York City data, um, those of Asian descent seem to always, I mean, CDC has the data too. They're well below every other demographic. Um, So certainly if you have an entire country, homogeneously of them. And then what you're saying is, I mean, how are they coding it? You also have the mutation question did the asians get that earlier version if that premise and that study is true it's a big if you know then it would mean it would make a lot of sense all the asian countries it was like it was a different story it was just it just spread you know much less so fewer people died um whereas this is more from a mutation in europe and all the western countries got it then you still have to kind of answer israel and germany um which seemed to have good outcomes Again, all this is weird, but then again, it could be they were much stricter in their coding because you're now bringing another aspect to this. I, I played audio on this show from the health director of the Illinois Department of Health where she said in a press conference last week that anyone who tests positive, anyone, even if they, quote, have an a clear alternate cause of death. So not just someone who's like – Asthma, diabetes, but they had no problems. They're clearly going to live a long life coming with COVID and they die. Like, come on, they died from that. No, I mean, like they could have had a heart attack. But here's the interesting thing that I'm wondering now. Forget about the insidious nature of this, the political desire to juice up the numbers, the financial incentive of hospitals or nursing homes possibly to juice up the numbers. But even just, you know, a less insidious um, thing, if you're a doctor a month ago 6 8 weeks ago and certainly until fairly recently and even now this is ebola this is like this is the bubonic plague so you test someone like you know he had covid oh my god like like it's like if you would test someone as ebola like come on he died of ebola like that that's that's clear but now that we know everyone has it i mean i'm exaggerating but you know what i mean it's 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 far and wide millions upon millions have it and have had it And therefore, it's not nearly as deadly. So even if you're hospitalized and you test positive, I mean, people die every day of all sorts of things. And I would venture to say the majority of the 70,000 are legit. But I don't know. Is it really more like 40 or 50 than 70? I really do wonder that because I want to venture into the final point and I want to get your take on this. My article just published as we are recording today. Um, one of my biggest observations, and I really think this is the most important thing in the here and now, is what is the state of play of COVID in America right now? That's a very important question. If you would have told me a month ago, where would we be, Daniel, on May 6th? I would say if you look at all the trends of the six to eight week shelf life, it goes up very quickly. It goes down very quickly. We would be done with it. We're pretty much done with it. But in fact, what you're seeing is the deaths are skyrocketing. They're off the peak, but they're not plummeting. There's several thousand every day. Now, the hospitalizations are in the toilet almost everywhere. Anecdotally, it, 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 it appears to be over, but the deaths keep coming. Now, again, some of that's the general inflation that we believe is taking place. Some of that is backfilling, that they didn't die, depending on the state and the city that day, but they're backfilling them. But then I discovered they had a pounds gorilla in the room which would explain the hospitalizations because they're dying in nursing homes. You look at Pennsylvania on May 1st, 55 of 62 of the announced recorded deaths, whenever they had occurred, were in nursing homes. Every state now, every state now appears to be, with the exception of New York because the ubiquitous spread, but even then it grew. Every state appears to be over 50% in terms of the composition of deaths that long-term care facilities make from beginning to end of this epidemic. But if you look at the last two weeks, it is, it's is—it's almost like essentially no one's dying outside of a nursing home. I mean, it could be a little bit exaggerated. What is your take on that? I think for sure it demonstrates the, the epidemic is over outside of it and it is unjustified to keep this going and unjustified not to put 100% of our resources into nursing homes rather than spending our time and regulation and police force on you know a, a quarantine of beaches where there's no spread or no proven spread but what do you think that what is going on with the nursing homes and why would the why would the spread be even worse now there than the peak so
1: couple of facts Factors. So, first, it um, you know this confirms the the idea that we're now coming around to that this is really a disease in the elderly, a disease in the sick, and who are the most vulnerable? It's it's people in nursing homes, and so it, it makes sense that you know out of the out of the you know 50% of the uh, deaths from COVID-19, I've seen different reports, but it you know, ranges from 25 to 80%, but we can land for the purpose of this call, 50% of COVID deaths are from nursing homes. Only 0.5% of the population is in nursing homes. So 0.5% is now making up about 50% of the deaths. Why is this increasing now? You know, that's it, it, a great question.
0: Or is it? Or is it? I mean, that, that, in other words, I'm not trying to be funny here. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm literally talking out loud to our audience. I, I did not, I just presented the data in my piece and I presented that for sure. We know people outside of it, this, this nonsense needs to stop. Now, the other half of it, I don't know. And, and I'm asking, um, either they are padding the numbers, in other words, either, um, cause again, I mean, every COVID person and then they die. Um, they're, they're coding it that way, and you have to have some sort of analysis of how many typically die per day, per week, per month in a nursing home and see if they're just throwing those in. Um, you have to see if some of this is the, the blowback or the, the, the washback from those in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and California, maybe other states as well, where the state mandated they take in those who tested positive from hospitals. Maybe some of that's a lagging factor of that. I don't know, Um, and maybe and this we I think they need to be transparent about and they're not. How many of them are backfilled? We know the seventeen hundred New York City yesterday that was backfilled. We know that, Um, but I don't know. I mean, do you you have any any ideas? Good
1: good point. So um, you can. So you know. People in nursing homes are at a much higher risk of dying every day than than people in the general population if this is indeed widespread as it looks like we are seeing that you know a large percent in these nursing homes it's likely there's a large percent of this virus spreading throughout them and so anyone that dies is a very good chance they will test positive for covid and that doesn't necessarily mean again that they died from covid it could just be that overlap. so maybe we're getting a increased um, number of, of these COVID deaths, which maybe aren't directly actually attributed to COVID. Um, the second idea that you mentioned is you know, I think it's, it's an interesting idea to try to compare maybe deaths at a, the average number of deaths at maybe a fairly large nursing home to historical numbers to see if there is truly an increase in overall deaths. Um, there's flaws, obviously, with that science, but it might be a little bit of a kind of case series. Um, analysis or a kind of a study case to to determine if the numbers are truly going up that much. I mean, with 50% of deaths happening in nursing homes, one would expect you to be kind of taking out body bags after body bags in nursing homes um, compared to, to prior years. Um, I guess that's all I can speculate on that.
0: Sure. And and, and I, that's the thing. I don't want to put you on the spot. This is not got you. And I just, I'm just talking out loud because you would think at a minimum the government every day would put out state-by-state state data the following. How many died inside a nursing home? How many outside? How many died that day? How many died previously and are being recorded that day? And then just in general, they should always be doing this, some stratification of of the age and health status. I mean, th- this makes all the difference because I mean, I'm not making this stuff up and you're going to see um, I have all the data and, and, and it's not like relative to March. It's relative to April 19th. The percentage were – so if you go, let's just say, from 30% being nursing home deaths to 60% being nursing home deaths in total over the whole time, over a matter of two weeks, that means in those two weeks – and I actually dug out the numbers. Like in Virginia, it would mean that almost every person who died is in a nursing home. I know that's taking place in some of the smaller states in Minnesota. Literally, almost every single person now dying there is in a nursing home. Literally. Because now they're up to – Total, and this from the beginning, 85%. 85%. We're not talking about elderly and chronic conditions. We're talking about just in a nursing home. Elderly and chronic conditions, as of last week, was 99.24. And and kudos to them for putting that out. Others have not done that. But, I mean, this is remarkable. I mean, they're they're saying everyone's dying. And, you know, we need to know what's happening now.
1: It is. And I I would say that probably the main takeaway point from this is a little bit twofold. So, one we need to protect uh, the vulnerable in nursing homes so there are uh, different from people that are in the workforce they have less control over their environment they can't really decide which staff sees them it's hard for them to make decisions on any need protective equipment or kind of protecting themselves from this so i think there needs to be a uh, strategy in place uh, in america to test those uh, you know, nursing home patients, people and staff and aggressively treat those people uh, with hydroxychloroquine. That still seems to be the most effective therapy that I'm seeing. And that would be under medical supervision. And, just, and that would be a way of protecting the, hydro- the, uh, the nursing home uh, people. While we are now learning that the, the workforce is people that doesn't have a very low fatality rate. And those people can go out to work and I still think should uh, have early early treatment for diagnoses uh, when appropriate. But um, I think that would be a good strategy for reopening America, getting our economy back on track. And there can be some social distancing and stuff initially to make sure that this is a prudent approach. But uh, that's kind of what I think would be a good strategy for reopening America. And that's uh, a lot of that's uh, captured in a report we put out. Um, about a couple weeks ago now on uh, a two-step strategy to reopening America.
0: What what do you say to those, what do you say to those who contend that, well, okay, even if you're right, it's still only 10% of the population that got it. You know, it's a long ways towards herd immunity and so many people are going to die.
1: I actually would venture to guess that it's it's higher than that already. Again, I'm going to double down on my, uh, on my early March uh, prediction. I think it, Again, um, these serology studies, I think that they tend to have more false negatives than false positives. And so I think they're actually a somewhat conservative estimate of the amount of people that have already been infected with this virus. Um, like I said, regarding any of the PCR tests for an active ongoing infection, it um, it it's a snapshot in time. And then uh, some of the antibody tests don't necessarily look at IgM antibodies, which IgM is... Um, evidence that you're kind of actively fighting off this infection, whereas IgG uh, tests are looking at antibodies, saying that you already made antibodies for this historically, and so you know some some of the antibody tests may be missing people that are asymptomatic, but with an active infection uh, going on.
0: Very, very, very important observation. I, and I would just say also with the nursing homes, this is a a, a feather in the cap of the viral load theory that. You know, it does appear that in the nursing homes, again, and we're not sure how much of this is is kind of funny money, how much of this is real. But if you take it face value, what the data there, the states are reporting, you know, yes, and and you have some data on this. Yes, the fatality rate could could rise to you know over one percent and even two, three, depending on how old you get. But it appears that the fatality rate in nursing homes is is even much higher than an individual who would be eighty five years old outside of one. and that almost does give credence to the viral load theory. But then, you know, again, you'd have to know the difference between prisons and there. Yes, they're older and a larger percentage will die, but either there's a viral load or not. I'm not sure. I mean, again, it's just something that maybe you want to study, ask around. i'm I'm really curious about, um, I I know I I, I only asked you for half an hour, but if you have three more minutes, if you could stay. Could you just give the quick case for hydroxychloroquine um what did the VA government study get wrong by saying it harms people and it's not good and if you have time what do you think of the Gilead uh, remdesivir um drug that they're talking about
1: <laughs> A lot of stuff is coming in 3 minutes um <laughs> but uh, I don't mind running a little bit longer if, you're, if the audience Okay if you if you're
0: okay with that <laughs> yep.
1: Um so the VA study was published a couple of weeks ago. It was, I'm just gonna do a little bit of a brief background on the study and then I'll talk about the, the major problems with it. But published a couple of weeks ago by researchers at University of Southern Carolina, South Carolina and University of Virginia. And it looked, it was a retrospective analysis, which I'll talk about what that is in a minute. Looking at about 368 patients in, who are treated in VA systems across the country with either hydroxychloroquine hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin or neither of those treatment combinations and there's about a hundred patients or so in each of those three treatment arms and what they found is that the patients who were treated with hydroxychloroquine alone had an actually significantly higher mortality rate than those who received no treatment and then the hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin combination uh, really showed no significant difference from from the no treatment group first of all this uh, was very, you know, these the results are very really peculiar because first of all, you know, hydroxychloroquine alone, m- most people say is not going to increase your risk of dying. The, you know, people who are looking at the, the rare cardiac effects of a combination of drugs, such as hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, because both of these drugs do prolong a the QT interval, which is an interval on an EKG, which can lead to cardiac side effects. Extremely rare, but is possible, and that's what uh, a lot of the media tends to, to focus on when they want to show how dangerous this medication is. That that group, the ones that received hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, did not have an increase, a significant increase in mortality rate compared to the no therapy. It was just in the hydroxychloroquine group alone. So first of all, one of the major flaws in this study was there's a significant difference in the groups regarding the white blood cell count. So the patients in the hydroxychloroquine and hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin treatment arms had lymphopenia. So a lymphopenia is a uh, reduced number of a certain type of white blood cells. And it's a known marker to predict death, mortality. It, it shows that your body is in a seriously ill state and increased your cancer diet. So we already had a different, a significant difference between these two groups at baseline before they even started treatment. Number, number two is, um, is the, uh, this is a retrospective analysis study. And so retrospective analysis studies are, are, are good when you need information quickly, uh, looking back at, at what happened to patients and what works and what doesn't. And so I'm not going to discredit retrospective studies, but they're not randomized controlled clinical trials. And the reason I mention this is because the FDA and CDC have, from the beginning, said, well, we want to see a randomized controlled trials showing hydroxychloroquine and lipomycin efficacy. That's what we need. Yet, they take a retrospective analysis that had major flaws, so not a randomized controlled trial, that showed that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, and then use that study to issue a national warning to physicians all around saying, uh, cautioning the use of hydroxychloroquine in treatment of COVID-19. And this has really dramatic consequences for studies that are looking at, that are treating patients. There are studies, clinical trials that are ongoing testing hydroxychloroquine. Their enrollment has dramatically dropped since that warning came out. So it's almost like an orchestrated effort to not give hydroxychloroquine a fair trial. You demand a randomized controlled trial, but then you issue a warning making those trials uh, very challenging, um, which is, I think, uh, you know, a, a really unfair uh, way of going about this. The last, probably, arguably, the most important criticism with that study, and something that I've been harping on for it, is, that hydroxychloroquine likely only works in early treatment of COVID-19. It's an antiviral. We've known with other antivirals, the flu, with Tamiflu, and that it really only works if it's used within the first few days, maybe 48 or 72 hours even of symptom onset. And that VA study looked at very sick patients. The mortality rate was between 11% and 30%. So that's far higher than, than, most, um, than, than even the most aggressive mortality rates for COVID-19. And, so, and, and a lot of those patients were already on ventilators even before they got treatment. So it was really not a fair, a fair shot for uh, for hydroxychloroquine. And then, furthermore, if you want to look at another retrospective analysis that came out last week, it uh, was about 568 patients, and it actually showed the exact opposite findings as the VA. So regarding retrospective analyses, you now have one saying uh, it makes it worse, and then one saying that there is a significant mortality benefit. So at the bare minimum, those two studies cancel each other out. I think raised doubt that this VA study really showed that hydroxychloroquine has no clinical benefit or is even harmful.
0: So let me take it a step further. So do you think that it would be prudent to preemptively give certain vulnerable populations, perhaps in nursing homes, um, hydroxychloroquine early?
1: So that's a great question. Something that we hypothesized. Um, back when we released this, this paper in early March, is could hydroxychloroquine be used as a prophylaxis? It's a, a, a very safe drug. It's been used for over 60 years, and a lot of people take it for lupus. It's considered a daily vitamin for lupus by rheumatologists. Um, that data has yet to come out. Um, there are a few. There are a number of studies now looking at that, which I'm following very closely. Um, but uh, I, I would say that there's not enough data it's been published to show that it is an effective prophylaxis. There's some anecdotal evidence that it seems to decrease your risk of infection. But I think what we do know is there are a few people that are on this medication that still get COVID-19. So it's, I would say it's certainly not 100% prophylaxis. Does it decrease your risk of getting infection? Does it decrease the severity of the illness? Maybe. I'm not sure yet.
0: And related to that, um, aren't we seeing that in other countries? I mean, I don't know how much you could trust the data. It's a little bit of a caveat. But in Turkey and Greece, maybe some other countries where they did aggressively and early on treat with this, and they seemed to get a pretty good result.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly right. They're getting fantastic results. I've talked about um, that data before, and I've received private messages um, saying that, not saying that the data is bad, but saying that it's, it's tough to... To know what's reliable, and so I, I try to put out the most reliable information I can. And so, if anything kind of wanders into something that is uh, something that I don't know and can't really stand behind with a certain degree of confidence, I just refrain from putting out there. Do I have privately my own uh, intuitions regarding that and such? Uh, yes, of course. But you know, I, I try to be a little bit more conservative in that front before I uh, kind of publish or tweet anything uh, about that. But uh, yeah, those those. There is evidence in those other countries that this is working very effectively. You also could look at India. Um, that Very early on, shortly after our paper, I uh, started prescribing hydroxychloroquine as a prophylaxis to their healthcare workers. Um, I think they're seeing good results with that as well.
0: Wow. Very, very enlightening. And I think I, I want to have you back as this uh, goes on. Very long show today, but I think our guys are going to eat it up. Because I, I just, you know, everyone the knows I'm on, on could, the back. I could should, talk yeah. about
1: remdesivir for a second too. Oh, I forgot about that. Okay. You know, I sat
0: and asked you and then forgot about that. Okay. Um, So, quick
1: minute. So, uh, hydroxychloroquine, generic drug, uh, about 12 manufacturers in the U.S. Really, uh, no one stands to really profit immensely off this, uh, you know, if this is shown to be be the best treatment for COVID-19. From severe, privately, you know, one manufacturer, Gilead, Gilead stock rises and falls based off how these studies are coming out regarding this drug. And there's a lot of conflicts of interest when you go up to the level of the NIH panel that puts out the treatment guidelines for um, for treatment of COVID-19. Uh, nine out of 50 of them have a conflict of interest with Gilead or they're employed by Gilead or have an investment interest with Gilead. So it's nearly 20%. Um, and even the, the study that was presented by Dr. Fauci uh, with Dr. Birx and uh, President Trump there, The way it was presented seemed like this drug was much more effective than what he was actually saying. What he was saying was this medication, Remdesivir, has been shown to decrease your hospital stay by, I think, four days compared to people who did not get Remdesivir. They did not show any mortality benefit. So, out of their fairly large sample of patients, there's no difference, significant difference in mortality. Moreover, A study that was first accidentally leaked by the World Health Organization and then taken down and then published right after uh, Dr. Fauci made that announcement was a study that showed remdesivir did not have any significant clinical benefit to uh, patients compared to no treatment. And that was a randomized controlled trial as well. So, there's not a whole lot of great support for remdesivir at this point. And I would like to take that one step further even. Remdesivir is not a good treatment option for most people. It's not a good treatment option for early courses of disease because it's an IV. To get this medication, you have to receive in the form of an IV, which means either going to hospital or having some outpatient service providing an IV for you. And is that necessary in the vast majority of patients who are now learning that they're asymptomatic or have an extremely low infection fatality rate? Whereas something like hydroxychloroquine, a widely available pill, that is something that is much more friendly and could be so much more powerful, uh, you know, when or if shown to be as effective as, as we think.
0: Yep. And, and, and from what I've heard, I, I told my audience, I have an uncle in Long Island that was hospitalized. He was on oxygen. Um, it wasn't, it was a pretty, pretty bad case of it. And I believe that's how they treated him there. Thank God Cuomo relented. Um, and it it looks like it had a positive result, and that was even a little later. I mean, he was sick for a little while.
1: Yep. So that's that's the last thing. I, I, it's been interesting. Is so New York, well, you know, they announced in uh, late March, early April that they were doing this, you know, this trial of of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine in patients. Supposedly, those results were given to them in in late April. I think April twenty second, and yet I've yet uh, yet to see any anything published out of that. My assumption is that they they probably used this uh, medication, latent disease, because they were interested, I guess, in conserving the supply from the sickest patients. So I don't expect the results to be that fantastic. But it's very peculiar to me that that those results haven't been published yet. I'm not sure why.
0: Well, the same reason why I think a lot of what we're talking about hasn't been published. And, And this is what I just don't understand. I mean, you know I'm an unabashed conservative. Everyone knows who I am, what my agenda is, and I'm, I'm quite emphatic about it. But at the same time, I do have journalistic intrigue, and you know y- you have something that shut down the entire world. You want to learn about it, and I find it amazing that this engaging conversation is not taking place on some of these bigger shows, bigger venues, um, and and there's just a lack of of academic peculiar, uh, a peculiarism or, or even just like insight and interest in anything um it's almost like shut up this is what we need to be doing and and just basic questions about this and and again it's one thing in february okay we don't know much about it what's the deal but by now i mean cdc has got to be sitting on endless endless data um and it's just shocking to me how they haven't published much i agree Anyway, we are in double overtime, but I think our audience certainly appreciates your time. Keep us updated. Follow him at, at James Todaro, MD on Twitter. You could see his pinned tweet at the top has a copy of his um, study on hydroxychloroquine, uh, where you could see his case, an evidence-based case for use of its treatment. We are out of time. Fight for liberty. Do not back down. Same time, same place tomorrow. God bless you all.